Today's conversation is brought to you by CareNet. Since Roe v. Wade has been overturned, many are asking what's next for the pro-life movement. CareNet believes that the new goal must ensure that every child not only receives the gift of life, but has what Jesus called abundant life. In CareNet's e-booklet, Why We Must Be Pro-Abundant Life, you can discover how marriage, fatherhood, the sanctity of life, and the gospel of Jesus Christ form a holistic approach and provides a blueprint for the pro-life movement. Download your free copy at care-net.org. Click on free resources and choose why we must be pro-abundant life. There are things that need to be discipled into evangelicalism and things that need to be discipled out. We've seen a lot of things come into evangelicalism at a higher level. And we've also seen some things come out. And I guess the question is, are the right things going in and going out? Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Today's conversation brings in Ed Stetzer, who serves as a professor and dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He's also the regional director of the Lausanne Movement, among many other leadership roles. Together, we talk about what God is doing among evangelicals in the U.S. and around the world. Listen in. So, Ed, thanks for joining us today. It's always a delight to connect with you. Always good to be in presence of Walter Kim, my fearless leader. (laughs) Well, Ed, I I was looking back, and the last time you had been on a podcast with NAE was in 2016. Oh, my. Uh, I know. It's really eventful years in between. You've been engaged with the NAE. Uh, yeah. Since then, you're on our executive committee, you're one of the teachers in our Right Now Media series, and of course, you've presented at all sorts of NAE events, including the Flourish Conference. Um, but a lot has happened. And so, between 2016 and now, how would you describe the state of evangelicalism? Yeah, I'm going to pass on that question. So um, let's go to the. <laughs> no, um, well, it's it's been quite a it's been quite a ride um, the last few years. The, um, you know, I actually well, first I changed jobs during that time, and so I, I went from being the vice president of a company called Lifeway to being the head of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, and then you know started engaging some of the current cultural moments at a higher level. When I was at Lifeway. There wasn't really, um, you know, it wasn't really appropriate to do that. It was Lifeway's a bookstore and a publisher. So, uh, you know, I'd spoken up on some things, written on some things. But one of the reasons that I left Lifeway was the opportunity to speak out on more cultural issues. I just didn't expect those to be the cultural issues. So I think um, evangelicalism, you know, it's, it's, there's, you know, there's an old statement about evangelicalism being embattled and thriving. I mean, that's, that's probably still, um, still, uh, a, a description that you could use of evangelicalism numerically. And I know people don't, you know, the people debate sort of the numbers, but, uh, that's a book, by the way, by Christian Smith and, uh, Michael Emerson is called Evangelicalism Embattled and Thriving and kind of a, a well-known book and, and that kind of framed, framed a lot of the conversation about, uh, evangelicalism it was published in 98, I think. So, um, living up to its reputation, there's still a struggle. And I think part of that struggle, and this is part of what I'm writing about in a very late book to InterVarsity Press, is that, you know, people started shaping evangelicalism from its very beginning. What should be a part of it and what shouldn't be a part of it. And the word picture I use in the book is 
uh, you have a potter, like there's a potter's wheel and, you know, it spins around. And what happens is there's actually a technical term for when you add clay or you take away clay. And it's, that's what it's all about in making pottery is well, shaping it, but then adding and taking away. And the word for adding and taking away is throwing. So you throw from the, it's from the positive, you throw in. So I need more clay at this particular point of the jar. I throw it in and then you throw it out. You take it off and you put it to the side. And I think 2016 forward has been a remarkable time and then really a, a, a battle in many ways about what should be thrown into evangelicalism and what should be thrown out using the pottery term. Um, I was on NPR's Morning Edition in 2017 or something, and I, and I talked about it and didn't use the pottery example, but I talked about there are things that need to be discipled into evangelicalism and things that need to discipled out. Now, you know, when you're on Morning Edition, you have a little more time, so I'll explain what we mean by disciple. But so I, I think um, we've seen a lot of things come into evangelicalism at a higher level. And we've also seen some things come out. And I guess the question is, are the right things going in and going out? Last point related to that. The big voice missing all this is there was, in some ways, a singular figure who was the potter. And I, I, it wasn't, I mean, certainly the Holy Spirit was involved, but that was Billy Graham. And so Billy Graham, and, you know, with organizations he created, you know, think about, you know, Carl Henry and, and Akin Gay and, you know, and things that he helped influence, like the NAE, didn't create the NAE, but the NAE, uh, Christianity Today, Lausanne. All these things, two of the three things I just listed were actually founded or co-founded by Billy Graham. And the people that he brought to that table and the people that he didn't bring to that table helped to shape a cohesive movement. This was, and, you know, I think it was, oh, wow, several people have said it. I might have heard Randall Balmer say it. But, but you know, to be an evangelical, you can tell if someone's evangelical if they like Billy Graham. And and everyone laughs at that, but it's it makes sense because people to the left of Billy Graham didn't like his clear focus on conversionism, maybe his conservatism. People to the right of Billy Graham, more fundamentalists, didn't like his cooperation among other uh, evangelicals and sometimes beyond. So what I would say is you had somebody who sort of everybody sort of acknowledged that he had his hand on the potter's wheel and helped shape what it was. And some other people I mentioned as well alongside it. I, I think the difference is from, you know, and I would say you start seeing this stuff a little earlier. It's not just 2016. That's an election year. So it's not just an election year. But what you saw around that time is the fringe came from the fringe, became more pom prominent in the center. The center didn't hold. And people had questions about the, if the center of evangelical institutions were at the right place. And I think we're right now in a, in a battle that, and Walter, I don't know if the NAE is going to, help shape the future of evangelicalism or if someone's going to shape a future of evangelicalism that 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 says the NAE shouldn't be part of the future of evangelicalism. I think those questions are still before us and institutional evangelicalism is trying to respond to the cultural turbulence and the internal Christian division, the sorting that's going on. But I think it's fair to say it's been quite a ride the last decade. Yeah. Ed, you, you've invoked this image of throwing uh, yeah. from pottery and there, there is a measure of creativity in it, but essentially there's also a measure of a, a, bit, a bit of, you know, kind of violence and force throwing clay down. And you've used language now of sorting, of yeah. uh, sifting out. And you've also used language, um, I think of the presentation you made at our Flourish event, of convulsion, that we're in yeah. a cultural convulsion. Yeah. 
Um, but we've also been in moments like this in the 60s and 70s. For sure. So connect some of these dots for us right now of describe a little bit of the cultural convulsion. What are the signs of it? And and what do we learn from the 60s and 70s that actually gives us hope yeah. uh, in the midst of this throwing, sorting, convulsing? Yeah. And of course, the the cultural convulsion is not just about evangelicalism, though it impacts evangelicalism. So the cultural convulsion is that it looks like, and I, and I wrote about this citing prior authors who wrote about this. I wrote about this in one of my outreach magazine columns. If someone's interested, they just type in my name and cultural convulsion. But it seems like every 60 years, America, and in some ways the world, though the world sometimes is a little different because, you know, every, every place is a little bit different. But I think, um, you know, we, I, I lived in Oxford in the fall and taught there at Wycliffe Hall. And they would very much say they're in the midst of a cultural convulsion. So, and, you know, we had students who engaged from the Philippines and Brazil and Africa all would say this, we're in a unique moment globally that really has some substantive questions about where we go from here. And part of the 60 year cycle that America seems to go through and maybe the West goes through and maybe it impacts the rest is, um, is we sort of turn on one another and say, man, I'm not sure I, I put up with you long enough. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that I, I want to be in the same world or nation or relationship with you. I'm not sure I believe uh, the news sources. So think back to the sixties, right? You know, people were uh, tuning out, they were developing alternative news sources. They were, they were kind of developing alternative ways of living and realities. And, and it was very divided. People felt they were unsure whether the country was going to pull itself apart. And I, I think that, and we have people who have a living memory of 1968, perhaps the peak of that cultural convulsion. And in that year, there were, um, you know, there were huge anti-Vietnam War protests. There were huge civil rights protests. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Um, there was uh, political violence at a much higher level. The, if you're old enough, there's a famous video of Dan Rather before he was famous getting pushed over at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. There was there was violence in the streets. There was riots across the country. And what a lot of people forget is actually there was a um, there was a global pandemic that year too. Um, your grandparents or great grandparents or or maybe you called it probably called the Hong Kong flu. We call it I think H3N2 today. And you know. The, all this, I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. And and so we experience something like that. Now, not in the same ways. You know, again, it's not the same thing. For example, we didn't shut down everything in the last pandemic. And matter of fact, in 1968, they started planning Woodstock that took place in 1969, which doesn't seem like a great strategy to slow the spread of disease. But that's another story for another day. But um, so so but, you know, that cultural convulsion lasted, what, four to six years. By the time we get to the early 70s, it sort of resolves its itself to some degree. But I think we're living through something that we've had a relatively um, calm period, political division and more from the late 60s until, you know, and I think to, you know, 2020 is a lot like 1968. I think we're living in about the 40th month of 2020, where a lot of what I said happened in 68 kind of sounds similar to what happened in 2020. Um, so probably we've got a few years to go still through some of this cultural convulsion. I, I'm I think this um, this it's probably going to get worse before it gets probably before it gets better. I think we have not seen the level of political violence we've seen in the past. Um, you know, I'm not a 
there's a joke I heard from Walter Kaiser that I use sometimes. Because if you've been following the Twitter sphere, you know that uh, that Gordon Conwell announced that uh, that Walter Kaiser died yesterday, and then subsequently announced that, oops, sorry, he really didn't die. And we talked to him, he's doing fine. I tweeted, uh, Walter Kaiser is back from the dead, according to Gordon Conwell. So we're excited about that. But the joke I heard from Walter Kaiser about predicting the future is that he wasn't a prophet or the son of a prophet, and he worked at a nonprofit organization. Well, that's me. So I don't know, but I think pastors, church leaders listening, it's going to probably be a hard few more years. The cultural convulsion's not done. The cultural convulsion has led to a great sort within the church that has created a level of division that probably most of us have never led bef- through before. And I still think a lot of that's to be settled of how we ultimately get to the other side of it. But you asked me to talk about one of the things that's good. You can correlate spiritual outpourings with cultural convulsions. If you look in the late 60s, you go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, Pentecostalism and other expressions. If you even go back to the mid-1800s, which is a civil war, but you do see uh, significant spiritual revivals. And in 1968, you know, I'm recording this from uh, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, and if I drove down a road about 20 minutes that way, I'd be at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And in 1968, Chuck Smith asked his daughter to meet a hippie, and she brought home a hippie who, uh, well, they started a Bible study together, grew to thousands. People maybe seen the movie, you don't have time to unpack all the story, but that is the Jesus People movement. And I'm a Christian today. I'm too, I'm too not old enough to be a Christian directly from what took place in the late 60s and early 70s. But some washed up hippies 10 years later after that shared the gospel with me and uh, so I trace my spiritual heritage along with, depending on the scholar, 20 to 30 million other people to the Jesus people movement in the last cultural convulsion. So if cultural convulsions loose, loosen people's connection to one another and to and undermine questions of the future inevitability of progress and cause people to question the modern experiment, they often ask spiritual questions. And I'm of the view that the reason we're having so many conversations about Jesus and, you know, what's going on in these universities and what's this He Gets Us campaign that everyone's, you know, talking about commercials and why is The Chosen on now network television on the CW and why are people watching this and, and you know, and why, why did that movie, Jesus Revolution, take off? Because I think moments like this often spawn spiritual questions, which often lead to spiritual awakening. So I'm I'm not discouraged. I mean, it's hard. I mean, if you're a pastor and church leader, it's a hard time. Uh, people are still quoting the Barna stat that said that this high, high percentage of people are thinking about quitting. And that it's, it, there were, there were, but that's gone down some. So it's not continuing to go up, but it's a hard time to be a pastor and church leader. We need, we need each other. We need reservoirs of resilience. We need communities of support. It's going to be a hard time probably going forward, but I'm not discouraged, maybe because I've read the end of the book and I know Jesus wins. But even before that, I'm not discouraged because in hard times, God works in powerful ways. Mm. And you've given us, uh, again, both a poignant picture of the challenges, the convulsions, but also pointing us to the reality that God is and has always been at work. And maybe these moments, these crucible moments um, are an opportunity for God's spirit to blow afresh. And I want to um, point to something that you said about the global community, um, that there is a convulsion that is also happening globally, whether it's in your time at England or elsewhere. Uh, you're a missiologist. You're deeply connected to what's happening in the global church. So let's um, let's shift 
the question now to the global situation of sure. what is the nature of the convulsion globally, but also there are some incredible stories of not the prospect of revival and renewal, but the actual reality of revival <laughs> exactly. and renewal all throughout yeah. the world. Yeah. And all of our angst in American evangelicalism is not something that they're experiencing around the rest of the world. They actually have angst about American evangelicalism, um, not about their evangelicalism. Now, now, you know, it's a bit naive to say that everything's going great. But there's a lot of things that are going great. So, you know, I, I wrote a book a few years ago with a, a Brazilian pastor, uh, Sergio Quiros at Cidade Viva. And we, we did research on the church in Brazil, wrote a book in Brazilian um, Portuguese. And I'm just thank God for what's going on in Brazil. Or, you know, I just met um, yesterday with people from, um, China, like um, not, we're talking about mainland China, and to hear what God's doing, even as the country is clamping down, what God is doing. So all around the world. Now, don't misunderstand. I mentioned Brazil. It's not all great, but I'm going to say it's great. But let me just say it's not. We're also not naive. The the rise of neo Pentecostalism in Brazil, which is not Pentecostalism, just so we're clear. It's it's almost like a shamanism where, you know, you buy these sneakers for $100 everywhere you walk, you'll be blessed, that kind of stuff. Even our Pentecostal friends in Brazil are concerned about the influence of some of the problematic expressions that's there, just like all movements can have problematic expressions. So we're not naive, but let me just tell you, God is at work. Aslan is on the move around the world. And one of the things, I'm actually planning a pan-Asian tour. Uh, I'll spend a few months, probably a couple months in Asia in the fall of 24. And, and I'm just so thankful to see and to learn and to hear about what God's doing around the world. Um, what worries me is that, you know, some of the unhealthy aspects of American evangelicalism do tend to be disproportionately influential around the world. One study of the top book, Christian books published in Africa was that I, I think the top five are all just Americans republished in local languages. So I don't want to export the unhealthy aspects of American evangelicalism. But but so whenever I'm discouraged about American evangelicalism, which I guess you and I have had a few conversations like that, I just look at around the world at what God's doing. And we can learn and listen to the global South. It really, it really matters. Uh, and I think that would help us theologically for people who maybe have... Um, have de-emphasized theology or moved away from a solid biblical theological core. I, I often hear more progressive Christians say, well, we got to, you know, listen to the majority world. Well, the majority world is solidly evangelical and let's listen to them on those, on those issues as well. So I want to listen to help us stay part of the global family, uh, the big C church, uh, theologically learn in different contexts and communities. And ultimately, I find encouragement of what God is doing among global evangelicalism. Again, not without his challenges, but but not the level of challenges that maybe we're experiencing in American evangelicalism. So connect the global movement with what's happening with the Lausanne movement yeah. and its connection. Actually, you alluded to it earlier, Billy Graham yeah. and the role that American evangelicalism has had in the formation of the Lausanne movement. But it seems to me that there's something happening where um, it's less about American leadership and more about American participation within the global church. So um, talk a little bit more about that because you're heavily involved in the Lausanne movement. Yeah. So historically, the Lausanne movement was co-founded by Billy Graham and John Stott. And so John Stott, of course, is a Brit and Billy Graham, 
course, an American. And they created what was eventually called the Luzon Covenant, which is widely used by all different kinds of people today. It's probably one of the most significant documents in in uh, in recent history of the church. Um, so, but they they so they started, and then it was a meeting in and 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 again, of course, it was in Luzon, which is Luzon is in Switzerland. Um, it is strange when people from Switzerland hear that we're having Luzon in Manila or Luzon in Seoul. It's like it's like saying we're having Boston in Chicago, but Mm-hmm. But but people sort of in the globally are aware of that. So uh, it then became this um, this platform for bringing bringing together global leaders, uh, global evangelical leaders for uh, the task of world mission. The full name is the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization, kind of shorthanded, commonly seen as the Lausanne Movement. So very influential uh, from uh, American, uh, you know, the up until. Um, you know, recently the vast majority of leaders would have come from an American context. Um, and, but now more broad. So we had a, a meeting in New York City, which it was in New York City. A lot of it had to do with we were coming out of the pandemic and who could get to where. Uh, but the, the meetings are not in um, the main meetings are not in America. The one before was in Cape Town. We know about Manila. We know about Lausanne in Switzerland. But, um, so, but the meeting in New York City was, uh, kind of a, pre-meeting to what's called L4. So L4 is the fourth Lausanne Congress, L4 in Seoul, Korea, September, 2024. Um, so, but at that preview meeting, I was, it's in America, it's in the US, it's in the North American region. I'm the North American regional leader. So they asked me to bring greetings. And what I said is probably worth saying uh, in response to your question. So I said, hey, I want to welcome you. And I want to acknowledge that, man, that we have, there's been a disproportionate influence of American leaders in global evangelicalism. Some of that's been for good and for great things. Some of that's not so much. But now the global South is increasingly uh, being heard, being engaged. And here's what I said at on North American soil. I said, so we look forward to going, you know, I'll be helping convene the delegation from North America, of which you're a part. And I will... Um, what I said there was, is that we look forward to being a voice in the chorus and not the choir director. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. And probably, I don't know that American evangelicals are particularly used to that, but I think it's a good, healthy thing. So we'll go to Lausanne. We'll spend a week. I've explained to the delegates. Uh, I've done briefings with the delegates that um, you're going to be talking to people from Micronesia who have who share your evangelical faith and convictions but have some different thoughts and uh, about what the future of the church uh, could look like, but their common faith in Jesus Christ and really their evangelical beliefs, what brings us together. So I think that the emergence of voices of the global South or the majority world, whatever term you want to use, uh, is a good thing and speaks to the future of Christianity. The future of Christianity is far more African than it is American just statistically, um, you know, probably Africa at the highest level, but far more Asian, you know, far perhaps, I mean, there'll be more, you know, depending on who's doing accounting by, by 2040, uh, last I checked, there'll be more evangelicals in Brazil than there are in the United States, you know, depending who's counting in China, uh, active evangelicals are, are continuing to grow. And, and, uh, you know, so those movements will eventually, um, if current trends continue, because, uh, identification in America of religion is de- of Christian faith is declining by one percent per year. We'll just do the math. So fifty years from now, that's a now it will bottom out at some point. But we're we're already active Christians are a minority in this culture already, and uh, much higher percentage of active Christians in many countries in Central and South America. So 
I think acknowledging that's a, a good thing. We still have disproportionate influence, but I think we do better when we listen to one another. Now, it doesn't mean, this is really key, doesn't mean that the North American delegation, uh, U.S. and Canada, it doesn't mean that there's no voice. We're just a voice in a chorus, not the choir director, which historically we were the choir director. So, Ed, what are we to listen for? You know, what what is your prayerful hope that uh, American Evangelical Church, uh, whether the you're a delegate that's in Seoul or you're participating virtually or you're getting updates from it or the fruit from it, what what do you hope gets accomplished? So, when to listen for and what I hope gets accomplished, let me let me do that in two parts. Uh, what I think we need to listen for is, um, you know, what what's God doing around the world, and what can we learn from what God's doing around the world? Um, we are moving into a place now where, um, you know, where Christian belief and practice in North America is really outside of the cultural mainstream, and that's not the case. I mean. You know, Walter, we've been around enough where, where like our views when we were younger were cultural mainstream. And now they're not only outside of the cultural mainstream, they're often considered dangerous by the cultural mainstream. We've lost our home field advantage. And so uh, I think we can listen and learn from people who've walked through some of those things. I think I hear, you know, some Christians talking, they're being persecuted. And, and, uh, and I, I think there are some, some very, particular situations where where government has harassed Christians for certain things. But for the vast, vast majority of us, we should never use the word persecution to describe our experience, particularly when we're compared to what is actually happening in, in many places around the world. So what does it look like to be a faithful Christian in a place where Christianity is not not only not respected, but maybe seen as dangerous and something worthy of suppression. And so, you know, we can learn from some of those things. How, how do people engage and respond in their cultural context? Um, and then I guess the question is, what do we hope for out of Lausanne? Is, our hope is, I mean, it is the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization. Uh, my hope is we'll have a clear focus on showing and sharing the love of Jesus. You know, a lot of groups, movements, I was just in Amsterdam with 6,000 wonderful Pentecostal leaders talking about how to finish the Great Commission, which, uh, you know, you have to define what you mean by finish, but but get the gospel to every people group in the world or give every person the opportunity to hear the gospel in the world. Doesn't mean that everyone's a Christian, but um, they want to do it by 2033, which depending on if you're, Rick Warren has a 2033 plan called Finishing the Task. He talks about the 20 the 10th, uh, excuse me, the 2000th anniversary of the Great Commission in 2033, dating it back to 33, though we all know we can debate those dates. But when you're with the Pentecostals, they want to do it on the 2000th anniversary of the day of Pentecost. So depending upon what anniversary you're counting, 2033 seems to be, for a lot of Christians, there's a lot of 2033 plans. Mm. And my hope that that Lausanne movement can help mobilize the global church. And we'll come back from Lausanne with a clear call to join Jesus on his mission, showing and sharing his love in a broken and hurting world, to do so so that women and men from every tongue, tribe, and nation can fulfill that Revelation 7 vision. You know, we're going to be there, Walter, and that's going to be the closest we are to what heaven's going to look like. Uh, maybe maybe not for you, but for me, uh, we'll be with more ethno-linguistic people groups from around the world, worshiping, we'll have, we have, I'm trying to remember if it's seven or eight official languages, all these languages together, be the largest gathering of multi-ethnic uh, and national Christians for the purpose of the Great Commission, I think in history. 
And so that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Matter of fact, if you don't like a multi-ethnic setting like that, you're really going to hate heaven because that's what it's going to look like forever. So what I hope is that in doing so, we'll get a vision, a Revelation 7 vision, and we'll come out from that place. I want us to talk about how are we going to engage the remaining unreached, unengaged people groups in the world. I want to come out with talking about how do we engage secularized countries that in Europe and growing secularization in U.S. and Canada. How do we, you know, there's a lot of questions that come here. How do we engage people of other faiths and of no faith? How do we, how do we stay faithful to the good news of the gospel proclamation and demonstration around the world because the world still needs Jesus. And and I, I'm going to, I'm looking forward to being with thousands of people who agree the world still needs Jesus. How do we get that done? Mm, deeply encouraging. You've described this multi-ethnic vision that we're all going to be extending into heaven uh, and eternity in, 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 in pursuing. But um, something else that I understand about this particular Lausanne is that it's also multi-vocational. In other words, it's not just about um, how to equip pastors, but exactly. business leaders, those in medicine or technology or education. Um, describe why that is such an important feature of this coming Lausanne. Well, I think the clergification of God's global mission has been noticed and unhelpful. And so how do we declergify that? Now, again, you and I are clergy, so we have to be careful. Here we are in a conversation that, that we are um, maybe maybe not the best people to have the conversation. But I think um, if we're going to see the name and fame of Jesus more widely known in all sectors and aspects of society, it's going to be in the workplace. So we're going to have a significant number of workplace leaders. Um, you know, Billy Graham, you know, I used to, I held the Billy Graham chair at Wheaton for, for seven years. So uh, everyone quoted Billy Graham to me and everyone, it was always fun because it was like, well, you know, Billy Graham said the most important thing we need to focus on. And one of the things I've heard multiple times is the nine to five window. We've heard of the 1040 window, but the nine to five window. So Billy Graham, I was told multiple occasions said, this is the most important thing for what's next. Well, I don't know, you know, if you, if you, there's actually like quote generators for Martin Luther. I think one day there'll be a quote generator for Billy Graham because he talks so much about so many things and cast vision for so many things. But I got to say that um, there are places that you and I will, I just, I just had a meeting yesterday and uh, about a closed access country that I will never be able to go to because it's easy to Google my name and you know who I am and what I do. Um, but, People in the tech industry could go there tomorrow. And so, and also too, I think at the end of the day, you know, First Peter uh, 4.1 says, each one has received a special gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each one includes everybody. In Greek, you know what it is in Greek? It's each one in Greek. It's literally what it says. So I think for everyone to use their gifts means that we've got to unleash the people of God to God's global mission. And I think the key is there, I mean, I think most people would agree we've got to unleash the people of God and they should you know, reach their neighbors and be good employees for God's glory. Their vocation matters. But I think what is unique to the Lausanne conversation is we got to unleash the people of God to God's global mission. So now it, so it's, it is and remains them living on mission in their workplace, their neighborhood and their family, their friends. Uh, but also too, what does it look like to intentionally engage God's global mission? And I'm just fascinated what is going to happen because we've had, you know, global kind of workplace conversations in Lausanne. I think if, and I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think like like the 40% or so are workplace leaders. And there were certain like metrics we were working towards in each of our regions. So I think that it's going to be an important conversation 
to sit around the table with not just a pastor or in my case, a missiologist, or in your case, you know, a scholar and leader NAE, it's going to, we're going to be sitting around the table who's somebody who's working in IT or somebody who's, who's driving a truck and uh, loves God's global missions, asking questions about how to be engaged and involved. I think that's a good, mature conversation. I'm excited about it. Mm. Ed, we've covered a lot of terrain here. Um, why don't you leave us with a final word of hope? What, what word of encouragement or hope would you give us at this particular moment? Well, I, I think, Walter, it's a, it's a tricky time. And I think that we're um, walking through questions about uh, what evangelicalism is, what it should be, uh, particularly in American. You know, we're, we're, this is the National Association of Evangelicals. You and I serve together with the National Association of Evangelicals. And that's an American thing, right? So we recognize people will listen other places around the world. But, but we're in a, um, tricky time. And, uh, there was a quote. Let me, let me share a quote is, has evangelical religion any distinctive principles? I answer it has. Are they worth contending for? I answer they are. Um, so where does that come from? That actually comes from someone named J.C. Ryle, who actually wrote that in 1898. So um, what encourages me in part is that we're not the first people to walk through some of the questions about what we should be for and what we should be known for and what the boundaries of our movement are and what the mission of our movement is. So I think that um, the Lord is at work among his people. He is guiding and shepherding. We can acknowledge that there are difficult times ahead of us. And, and can I just say, I think maybe we should act like people of courage. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed about what I believe. I recognize the culture doesn't like it. I, I'm not embarrassed, but I believe I recognize there's some Christians who don't like it. And so I think ultimately as evangelical Christians, um, you know, we have to, um, be people of courage in the midst of a culturally convulsive time, both to the culture, but also to other Christians who who may not, or people who articulate themselves as Christians who may not appreciate how we say and what we say. And and I think ultimately that I want the Lord to find us faithful. I, I want, I don't know that, you know, I don't I have any anticipation that 50 years from now, anyone will know my name, but I do think they, they'll know what the National Association of Evangelicals is. And Walter, your name will be in there because you were the president and I'm just the motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river. But my, my hope is, is that 50 years from now, they'll say, you know, evangelicals walk through a tumultuous and turbulent time, but they stayed true to the gospel. They approached the culture with winsome convictions that showed and shared the love of Jesus. And and maybe on the other side of that, there's a booming church that just is seeing people come to faith in Christ. Or maybe there's a smaller church that's being faithful and seeking to live as Christ's witness and seeing still people come to Christ, but at a lower level, I don't know what happens. But I know that 50 years from now, I want our children and grandchildren to look back and say that we stood for the truths of the gospels with the gospel on the authority of scripture and may those who go behind us find us faithful as the song goes mm, that is a good word our guest on today's conversation has been ed stetzer i'm walter kim and on behalf of us all thank you ed thank you brother the national association of evangelicals is where we use influence for good today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.